Open your Bibles to Matthew 5 as we come back this morning to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we do that, it's uh, helpful, I think, for us to stop and remind ourselves of why Jesus is giving this sermon. It's been some weeks since we sort of introduced this, but it's helpful for us to go back and kind of reframe that, to remind ourselves that this all started, this whole sermon grows out of the success of Jesus' ministry. That is to say, at the end of chapter 4, he was healing people. Uh, People were flocking to him from all over uh, Palestine, the Middle East. They were coming from near and far to uh, participate in his ministry. And Matthew describes them at the end of Matthew 4 as great crowds, massive crowds, who were gathering around Christ during this time. And there was concern on behalf of Jesus that his disciples would misunderstand what was going on. They would misinterpret or not discern these crowds. He was concerned that they would make the mistake of confusing the crowds with genuine believers. The the, the fact that so many people were there and showing such an interest that somehow they would misinterpret that to be some sort of sincere a spiritual work that's going on inside of them. He didn't want them to think that just because you can gather a bunch of people in the name of some religious activity, that those people necessarily translate into true followers of Christ. That's not the case at all, and Jesus does not want them to misunderstand that. And so we read at the beginning of chapter 5 that he gathers his disciples to himself, and he delivers this sermon to the disciples. They're the target audience. They're the ones who he's really talking to. And the point of the sermon that he wants to make uh, sort of forcefully to them, the point that he wants to make clear to them is what the nature of true discipleship is all about. This is a sermon that is concerned with defining clearly and, uh, and, and making plain to them the marks of genuine discipleship. Now, Jesus does that throughout much of the sermon by confronting the view of religion that had been fostered by Israel's leaders at that time. Their view of a religious person, their sort of construct of of what a a devoted person looks like, Jesus goes right after that and does everything he can to dismantle and undermine that view. Because they had basically constructed a system that allowed them to make some claim of devotion to God, some claim of religious involvement while at the same time living their lives and operating by the same principles of everyone around them, the same worldly principles that guided everyone around them. They constructed this system that was based on interpretations of Scripture that served to to basically justify their actions, to justify their attitudes, to justify their pursuits, which were all sinful. They wanted to have those things. They wanted to uh, seek those things, pursue those things. 
And at the same time, they wanted to make a claim of devotion to God. They wanted to have the claim, and at the same time, they wanted to have religious cover. Now, this is not unlike our own day. It's not unlike what we see around us today. There are people at every uh, sort of uh, strata of society. There are people at every, in every organization, at every level, from top to bottom, that make a claim of religious devotion. They want to be identified when it's convenient. They want to be identified with someone who has a faith, a faith in God, a form of morality or whatever it might be that's identified with some broadly acceptable uh, concept of religious devotion. So whether it's our politicians or their parties or whether it's our sort of uh, uh, cultural leaders or whether it's our sports heroes or in some cases even in our corporate structure, there, wants to, there are people that want to some sort, give some sort of lip service to to religious devotion, but when you look at their speech, when you look at their life, when you look at their attitudes, when you look at their pursuits, they are essentially indistinguishable from the world around them. The things that they are after, the things that they are in love with, the the methods by which they operate, all of those things are indistinguishable. Because the real attitudes of their heart, the real idols of their heart, the real desires of their heart have not been touched by God. And so even though they put a religious label on themselves, and in some cases they even put a religious label on their movement, that does not necessarily translate into a genuine work of God or a genuine pursuit of God. And so Jesus was sort of going after this same thing among the religious leaders. He was trying to dismantle this same kind of thing. He wanted his disciples to understand that a real claim of discipleship, a real claim of being a follower of Christ will not be in word only, but it will be transformative from the inside out, from your attitudes and your heart and all of those things from the inside out. And so he gives this sermon basically to justify that. And remember, he started with these beatitudes. He started with these statements that sort of identify the the real attitudes, the real nature of a believer. And then he begins to move into a section where he is taking on some of the misinterpretations, some of the twisting of Scripture by the religious leaders themselves. Because they had taken the Scripture through the years and molded it in such a way as to justify their own sinful attitudes, their own sinful pursuits. And over the last several several weeks, we've been looking at some of the ways that they've done this. We saw first how they twisted the Scripture to hide murderous hearts back in verse 21, or how they twisted the Scripture to hide adulterous pursuits, or how they twisted the Scripture to justify their self-serving divorces, or how even last week we saw they twisted the Scripture to essentially cover up their dishonesty. 
And in each of these cases, Jesus exposes them by pointing out the teaching of their rabbis and what has been said to those of old and then contrasting it with what is the true teaching of the Scripture, the true teaching of the Old Testament, what Jesus says, I say to you, which then represents the genuine interpretation of each of these passages. And when he's doing this, he's giving us not only the true meaning of Scripture, he's giving us the way by which we can discern a true disciple. Because a true disciple is one who follows a true meaning. A true disciple is one who, when he hears the Word of God, he responds to the Word of God. When he hears the right application, he responds to it. And so all of this is Jesus' aim. And as I said, we've already seen in this section four of these sort of correctives that Jesus gave to us. Today, we come to a fifth example, and next week we'll have a sixth one, Lord willing, But before we get there, we focus in today on verses 38 through 42, which is this fifth example of how uh, Jesus is exposing their misinterpretations, exposing their twisting of Scripture. And this one has to do with the issue of vengeance, or we might say paybacks, or retaliation, or whatever you want to call it. It deals with the issue of how you respond to people who hurt you and take advantage of you. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone anyone would sue you, To take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus here confronting the scribes and Pharisees in their use of Scripture, which basically in this instance was used to justify vindictive, vengeful, paybacks. They had used the scripture, the particularly the one that Jesus cites here, they had used the scripture to justify their animosity, their bitterness, their attempts to get even at all of their enemies. And Jesus is contrasting it with the attitude of a true believer, a true believer which he says is marked by selfless concern in the midst of conflict, even as you deal with what Jesus says is the one who is evil. A true believer is going to respond selflessly. Now, the, the, the principle there in itself is not that hard to discern and to understand. The biggest danger when you look at Jesus' words here, is that you would dismiss them as unrealistic, as somehow impossible, impractical, as something that's, that's useless, or in some cases, we would even say unwise. There are some people who hear the words of Jesus and actually conclude that to follow the words as Jesus says them would actually do more harm than they do good. 
They wouldn't serve any good purpose to follow his words here, wouldn't serve any useful purpose. As a matter of fact, they would make your life miserable, but even worse than that, they would make the world around you a more dangerous place. Because he's basically calling on you not to resist the evil person, not to resist the aggressive, the oppressive person, the overbearing person. And we all have heard, we've all been taught somewhere along the way, this sort of basic American fundamental idea that the only thing that's necessary for evil to prevail in the world is for good people to do nothing. And yet it sounds like Jesus is asking us to do nothing. To not resist the evil person. People with all sort of noble sounding mantras. All sort of noble sounding words. Justify themselves to mount up a fight, to take up arms, to mount a resistance, to stand in defiance of almost any and every offense to the point where for some people that kind of behavior, that sort of defiant and resistant behavior actually comes to define a true Christian. It comes to define someone who truly understands the call of Scripture. This is actually the way that you ought to be responding when you face an evil person. It's actually fostered in many circles a kind of militancy among Christians that honestly has no resemblance to the kind of discipleship that Jesus is talking about here. It has scripture. It has Bible verses. It has some sort of support. It has some sort of, some sort of uh, you know, code that it holds to, some sort of religious doctrine that it might foster, but it has no resemblance to what Jesus defines here as a true follower of Christ doesn't matter what the movement is, doesn't matter how many people it gathers, doesn't matter uh, just sort of how much success they may claim, doesn't matter any of that stuff. The vision that Christ lays out here is distinct. But the issue really is, is this realistic? I mean, is it practical? Is it even possible to live this way in the kind of world that we live in? How do we live out these principles? I mean, wouldn't to, 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 to live your life this way, wouldn't that actually be to empower bullies? Wouldn't it actually foster oppression? Wouldn't it actually create more exploitation if we actually did what Jesus says here? Well, listen to this. The key to understand what Jesus is saying here The most important thing to understand what Jesus is saying here is to realize that this is not about bullies. And this is not really about oppressors. And it's not really about exploitation. What this is really about, what Jesus is really getting at, is your attitude towards yourself. 
What he's really trying to get you to think about is the way that you view and the way that you think about yourself. You might read all this and begin to immediately ask, well, what happens if these kinds of evil people are not confronted? But what Jesus wants you to focus more on is the essential issues of the selfishness that's in your heart. You might imagine that the greatest challenge in society is subduing and dealing with evil men and women, the challenge of how to overcome them. But Jesus understands that the greatest, the largest, sometimes you might say the nearly insurmountable challenge in the world is not facing off evil men and women. It is facing off and subduing and overcoming the essential selfishness that is in your heart. Because he knows, more often than not, through the normal course of life, that it's actually this self-centered concern that's the greatest source of conflict for most of us in our daily life. Now, we know this because of what he says right here. Because while he mentions things like people slapping you on the cheek and people taking you to court and all that stuff, you go all the way down through all of these sort of scenarios that he outlines and you get down to verse 42 and Jesus begins to talk about giving to the one who begs from you and not refusing the one who would borrow from you. And you ought to be asking yourself, I mean, where did that come from? I mean, he's got all this discussion about bullies and lawsuits and all that. Where did this sort of, why did he introduce this whole idea of people begging from you? See, because the issue is not so much about the bullies. It's about you and the selfishness with which you interact with other people who you believe are threatening your self-interest. That's the issue. That's the issue. The whole issue here, whether it's begging from you, borrowing from you, or any of the other issues that brings up, all of them point to the same basic principle that a true disciple is going to be one who shows more concern for others than he does for himself. And that includes even people who are doing you harm. You show concern even for those people who may be potentially harming you. Now, Jesus shows this to us in four different scenarios, as I said. The first one we can take note of there in verse 38 and 39. Uh, This is a a true disciple. A true disciple is going to be marked by a selfless response to violent insult. They're going to be marked by a selfless response to violent insult. And Jesus articulates this principle in direct contrast to the misapplication and misinterpretation of the Old Testament once again by the scribes and Pharisees. And he quotes Deuteronomy 19.21, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Deuteronomy 19 states that. It's actually a section that is addressed to the judges within Israel. 
And it's talking about this whole issue of witnesses. It talks about the importance of gathering an adequate amount of witnesses and making sure that if you're going to prosecute someone, that you don't do so on the basis of a singular witness, that there ought to be at least two or three witnesses before you prosecute anyone. And then he goes on, Moses goes on to explain how you deal with people who in that situation might prove to be false witnesses. That is to say, they perjure themselves in some sort of way. He says in Deuteronomy 19, 18, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness or has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So in other words, he had some sort of ill motive, something that was driving him to try to make his brother look bad. And specifically, in verse 21, he says, your eye shall not pity them. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, when you discover in this judicial process and these legal proceedings, when you discover this false witness, then you need to deal with it squarely. Don't be lax. When you find this kind of perjury in court, when you find this kind of false witness, don't show unnecessary pity for this person. But deal with it, he says, deal with them according to the kind of sort of uh, punishment that they were trying to extract from you for their accused, the person they're accusing. And this was really a, 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 a principle that was intended to sort of make sure that the judicial system upheld proper penalties for false witnesses. But the purpose in all this, Deuteronomy 19, Exodus 21, other places where this principle stated, the purpose in all this was actually to make sure that people didn't take these matters into their own hands. The purpose of it was to make sure that people didn't walk away with some sort of vendetta against someone who came into the court and testified against them falsely. The purpose of it was to make sure that people didn't sort of uh, take justice into their own hands, to leave it into the hands of the court and to make sure that the court dealt with it properly. The scribes, however, ignored all that. They ignored the context. They ignored the meaning. They ignored what really the intent of all that was and they ripped it out of its context and they turned it into a principle of promoting their own selfish vendettas. Their own sort of vindictive, personal, vengeful uh, uh, you know, behavior. And they used it to cover up when they, when they harbored bitterness in their heart towards someone, when they wanted to even the score with someone and get back at someone. They would use these Bible verses that purportedly were all about justice. They would use them to justify and excuse their behavior as somehow noble, somehow honorable to God. And what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing all that. He's exposing their self-righteousness because he understood that's not the meaning of those verses. He understood that when you look at the scripture, it actually teaches you 
on an individual level that you're not, not supposed to take vengeance. You're not supposed to have sort of personal vendettas. You're not supposed to take justice into your own hands like that. In fact, Proverbs 20 verse 22 says this, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you, end quote. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, I'll do to him as he's done to me. I'll pay the man back for what he's done, end quote. Don't say that. That's ungodly. Or Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, God never intended you to be an instrument of vengeance. That's not your role. That's not your place. And people with vindictive spirits and people with grudges and people with animosity towards those and people who want to level the sort of even up the score, all of that stuff, that is ungodly. And people who try to do that in the name of religion or in the name of Christianity or whatever it might be, they misuse, they abuse the Old Testament, they abuse the scripture like that. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand this. That is not what God wants. That does not mark a genuine follower of Christ. And there's good reason why God does this. There's good reason why God doesn't want people to make themselves the arbiters of their own justice. When someone's done you wrong, when someone's mistreated you, when someone has, has uh, treated you differently or unfairly, for you then to try to determine what they deserve or what the penalties ought to be or what the payback ought to be, uh, Jesus, uh, God, the Scripture, they all want you to recognize that you cannot separate your implicit self-interest. You cannot separate your selfish concerns. You will always view yourself in too favorable of a light. You will always view your enemies in too unfavorable of a light. The cardinal rule of most people's sort of a system of morality, the cardinal rule of their morality is that you always remain the victim, never the perpetrator. People always see themselves in, in some way, as in some fashion, not as the perpetrator, but as the victim. And so in light of this, the scripture calls you to refrain Refrain from personal acts of vengeance. This is the biblical principle that stands behind Jesus' words here. I say to you, do not resist the evil one, but if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's the kind of selfless response that marks a genuine believer. It pictures the situation of a personal attack, or we might even say a personal insult. It pictures a slap to the right cheek, which was considered in those days insulting. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah pictures this. He's talking, he's, he's advising his people as they are being uh, overrun by the Babylonians and they're being overtaken. 
Though the Lord cause you grief, he says, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And so wait patiently for the Lord, he says. And then in verse 30 of Lamentations 3, he says this, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. See, striking on the cheek was an insulting thing. And he was saying, you have to let that happen. People are going to insult. You have to let that happen. You have, to, you have to wait patiently on God when they strike you. This was an insult, especially insulting the way that Jesus describes it here because he talks about someone striking you specifically on the right cheek, which because most people are right-handed today, just like they were right-handed back then, most people would, if they want to strike you on the right cheek, would have to stretch across their body and then pull their, the back of their hand across their body to strike you on the right cheek, which in itself was considered doubly insulting. As a matter of fact, the Babylonian Talmud actually prescribed that if someone struck you on the cheek, they had to pay a fine, but if they struck you with the back of their hand the fine had to be doubled because this was doubly insulting to do that. So it's a humiliating act. It's it's a demeaning act. It's an attack against your honor and your dignity. And what Jesus is calling for here is basically non-retaliation. He's calling on you to turn the other cheek. And I know some of you, really good with math, uh, you've counted up, well, okay, yeah, I got two cheeks. That's about as far as it'll go, though. They strike me once, shame on them. Twice, shame on me. But Jesus isn't trying to give you some sort of calculation here that is then going to release you to have the responsibility of retaliation. His point is that when someone strikes you, you don't strike back. When someone attacks your reputation, you don't attack back. When he smear you, when they go out and run your name into the mud, you don't smear back. You don't retaliate. You don't try to even the score. And you certainly don't, we might say, escalate the situation. The point of this is that all that kind of retribution is wrong. That it's not your place to dish it out because you are most likely not going to see the issues with clarity. You most likely are not going to see the issues with fairness. Your temptation is going to be to let your flesh govern your response, your own selfish pride, your own self-centered interest, as much as any kind of real interest in fairness, you will be driven by those kinds of things. And so the scripture tells you, leave it to the Lord. Put it into his hands, which is what the scripture tells you ever. Romans 12, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't resist the evil person. Don't avenge yourself. Leave it to the Lord. That's not because vengeance in itself is wrong. It's not because the Lord doesn't care about the issues of injustice that are taking place in your life. 
It's not because he doesn't notice when people are taking advantage of you. The reason he tells you not to avenge yourself and to leave it to him is because it is not your prerogative. God has not, God has not delegated that to you. He has retained that for himself. So few Christians understand this. You can see it on, almost on a daily basis as they respond to various conflicts and various sort of debates or whatever. They respond to this conflict as if there was no God. In fact, their response is almost indistinguishable from the response of the world. They sort of, they sort of glom themselves on to all of these various secular movements that are marked by this sort of militancy and resistance and all these other things because they don't take notice that these essentially secular movements are operating as if God doesn't exist. And so various believers begin to operate as if God doesn't exist. They respond to conflict as if God's not in control, as if God's not powerful enough or doesn't care enough to do anything about it. In other words, they respond to conflict in ways that reflect how very little faith they actually have. And you would expect the world to respond this way. You would expect the world to respond when they're insulted, when they're humiliated, when they're attacked in some way. You would expect them to respond by fighting back. You would expect them to respond by retaliation because that's really the only hope they have. You expect them to respond that way because... They don't see a world governed by God, but we shouldn't respond that way. Because we know that there's a God who rules and a God who's watching over us. And so the call is for us to learn to place our trust in Him. To place our trust in Him. To trust that He is able to overcome all of this stuff, that he can take care of it, to leave it to the hand of God. We don't want to do that. We don't want to wait. We don't want to make room, as it's literally in Romans chapter 12, make room for the wrath of God. We don't want to make room in our schedule for that to happen. We've got this all laid out. We know exactly how we would like to see all this stuff turn out. And it all revolves around our own self-interest. It all revolves around our own sense of, of, of self-righteousness. It all involves, revolves around our own sort of vindictiveness. But the Scripture says you literally have to just put that into God's hands. And I know the response. I mean, you say, well, I mean, what's He going to do about it? What's God going to do about it? I don't know. I don't know what God's going to do about it. It's not my job to know. In some cases, he might deal with it directly and immediately. He might bring some sort of calamity into the person's life. And there are evidences of that, not only in Scripture, but even in our own sort of anecdotal experience. We've seen the Lord deal with people that way. Or, or he might deal with it eternally. In other words, we might be like the psalmist who in Psalm 73 says he, he was jealous, he was envious of the wicked. He said they, they wear pride as their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice and loftily they threaten oppression. And he says he was looking at this in his own world and it almost cost him his faith. His his feet almost slipped. And he was there, he says in verse 11, with the people of God saying, how can God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? I mean, this stuff just happens over and over and over and over again. If there was a newspaper, it was on the front page every day. And people were wondering, is God going to do anything about this? He says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too wearisome. I mean, I know that feeling. You just get worn out. Worn out watching this stuff all the time, these sort of aggressors and oppressors. It was too wearisome, he says. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In other words, he remembered that these people will have a day of reckoning. They will face a judgment. God might not deal with them immediately or directly, but he will deal with them eternally in the end. Or we could even say he might deal with them administratively. And by that, what I mean is he might deal with them through the laws of the state because the scripture says that this is one of the primary reasons God has established government. In fact, in Romans 12, where Paul says, do not uh, take vengeance into your own hands, but leave it to the wrath of God. He, he then uh, um, goes directly into chapter 13, reminding us that it is God who has established governing authorities. He's the one who's established the law enforcement officers. He's the one who's established the detectives. He's the one who's established the court system. He's the one who's established the judges. He's the one who's put it all there together, and all of them are the ministers of God. Romans 13, 4, they are the servant of God, an avenger... Listen to this, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So he might take care of it directly, he might take care of it uh, eternally, or he might take care of it administratively, using the, the sort of systems that he's put in place. But you have to trust that it's his prerogative to take care of it when and how he wants to. You have to leave it to the wrath of God. And he will deal with it. Someone's going to say, yeah, but Bob, I mean, this, that, this world is messed up. I mean, this judicial system is messed up. The, you know, people around me are messed up. My boss doesn't know all the facts. My, you know, my uh, you know, teacher didn't get the full story. Or, you know, the people who are spreading rumors about me don't know the other side. Or all this other stuff. And you can just sort of justify in your own mind some sort of uh, retaliation against the other person. But I want to make clear to you, because the scripture makes clear to you, There will be no injustice. There will be no injustice. It may not be dealt with in your time frame. It may not be dealt with according to your calendar. But God promises you it will be dealt with. 
He is a just God. And for you to suggest otherwise is an assault on the righteousness of God. So leave it to God, he says. Leave it to God. Now we should say, as a way of clarifying here, then none of that means absolute passivism. It doesn't mean that you can never be involved with doing anything to bring about justice. We've already noted that the Lord appoints governing authorities, which involves, in some cases, national armies who engage in just wars, or people get involved with law enforcement so that they can make a difference as a minister of God or people get involved with the judicial system so they can make a difference as a minister of God. But even as you do that, you're operating within a broken system and you have to recognize that the system itself is not ultimately your hope, but it's God's justice that's your hope. Nevertheless, this does not rule out appeals to systems of justice that are out there. Remember even Jesus in John 18 when he was being questioned by the high priest and he started to answer the high priest. John 18:22 says that one of the officers standing by Jesus struck Jesus with his hand saying, "Is that how you answer the high priest?" Jesus apparently didn't show sort of enough deference or maybe didn't address the high priest with the sort of titles and accolades that he was accustomed to by his sycophants around him. What's interesting is at that point, Jesus didn't just quietly turn the other cheek. In fact, the next verse says, Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? In other words, Jesus understood the authority of the law. He understood that the way he was being treated was illegal. It was unjust. He understood that he could make an appeal to the law because God's the one who established the governing laws. And so you have to understand what Jesus is talking about here is not an, sort of an overruling of all of those systems of God's vengeance. What he's talking about here is non-retaliation, which is exactly what Christ demonstrated for us. Darby read it a little bit earlier, Psalm, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you could follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is the example he gave you. This is the kind of non-retaliation that he's calling for from you. And this is the principle which ought to drive it. Entrusting yourself to the one who judges rightly. You just believe that God's going to make it all right. He's going to make it all right. 
So back here in Matthew 5, when Jesus is teaching this on the Sermon on the Mount, he's not contradicting anything out of the Old Testament. He's not overturning the Scripture. He's not contradicting anything out of the New Testament. He's simply telling you that it's not your job to exact vengeance. You can appeal to the legal system. You can use those sort of uh, instruments that the Lord's put in place, but it's not your job. And in cases where laws have not been broken, in cases where people seem to be just getting away with abuse, you have to remind yourself no one's getting away with anything. Ever. Ever. Everyone is going to answer for what takes place. And you leave it to the wrath of God. Back here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us then, don't resist the evil one. And he illustrates it with this sort of, sort of uh, insulting slap and the selfless response. But then notice in verse, four, verse 40, he presents then a legal scenario, a selfless response to a legal attack. Almost as if he's sort of now um, deepening his teaching here. He's already sort of appealed to this legal construct, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But even that doesn't mandate or it doesn't justify you then trying to use that legal apparatus to inflict as much damage and harm as you could possibly do to somebody. In fact, he says in verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. This scenario involves obviously a a court proceeding, a suing, and he pictures here what might be considered sort of a frivolous lawsuit, someone suing you for your tunic. It's it's one of the two pieces of clothing that he talks about here, that tunic, which was a long uh, uh, garment. It would extend all the way down to your ankles, uh, most of the time made out of linen, sometimes made out of wool, but it was the most basic piece of clothing that someone had. Most Jews would have two or three of these because it was the, the garment that you wore next to your skin. It was the one that would get in most cases, uh, stinky and, and, and uh, dirty. And so they would have a couple of, of these that they would change out every day and wash. And then he pictures, secondly, an outer cloak, which was a much more valuable and rare piece of clothing. Many Jews would only have one of these. As a matter of fact, this was, in, in some cases, the thing that people would put down as, as an article guaranteeing a pledge, or we might even say like a collateral for a loan. But there was a law in the Old Testament that dictated that when that happened, Exodus 22 said, when that happened, you couldn't keep a man's cloak overnight. That was illegal. Because this was considered something that was essential to their personal welfare. Their cloak was that thicker uh, piece, oftentimes uh, made out of richer material, thicker material. It was the thing that you would wrap around your tunic to not only warm you during the day, but actually use as covers during the night. And in the cold uh, sort of Arabian nights of the Middle East, 
people didn't want to be found without this kind of tunic. And so the law governed that you wouldn't keep their tunic overnight. This was essential to them. And yet Jesus' command here is if someone comes along with some sort of frivolous uh, sort of grudge against you and some lawsuit against you and wants to take away your tunic, you don't respond with your own kind of ill will towards them, your own sort of vindictiveness or your own sort of resentment and bitterness. In fact, you reach the point where you're willing to forego not only what may be demanded by the courts, this assumes, Matthew 5.40 says, it assumes that you have been found uh, by the courts liable to give away your tunic, Jesus says, well, go ahead and give away your tunic, uh, your, uh, uh, your cloak as well. You, you go beyond what the court demands in order to satisfy a claim. All of this demonstrating that this is not about you. It's not about you possessions, It's not about winning and losing. It's not about any of that stuff. This is not about you. This is about maintaining your testimony. This is about maintaining relationship. This is about maintaining your integrity. And in the case of two Christians, Paul deals with this later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You ought to be willing and ready, especially if it's a brother or sister in Christ. You ought to be willing to forego all of that stuff to maintain that. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, if you have a dispute with a brother or sister, then, then take it to the church. Take it to the leadership. Take it to the elders. Try to mediate your differences that way. That's appropriate. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if you have to go beyond that into the secular courts, Paul says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've already been defeated by worldly values, by worldly pursuits, and by worldly priorities. If that now becomes the thing that defines your relationship with another Christian, another brother or sister, then you're already defeated. Because it's now the thing that defines you. Maintaining, holding on to your possessions. Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You go all the way to the mat sometimes, trying to just cling to some little thing. Just let it go. Someone's rammed their car into you and is being difficult about it, and you know that there's a claim that you can make on it. But it can't be dealt with through Christian mediation. Just let it go. I mean, spend whatever it is, a couple thousand dollars to get your sort of car in the body shop or whatever it is. That's, that's nothing, Paul says, compared to the damage of losing a brother or sister through that kind of dispute. 
And the idea is not that you just affirm every unjust claim on your property. Uh, There is certainly some avenue, as Paul says, to take it to mediation. There's some avenue to sort of appeal to try to see if you can resolve the issue. But just like turning the other cheek, you realize that when that system hits a roadblock, when it fails, when the fallen world around you doesn't quite make up for all the imbalances, you ultimately yield yourself to God. You entrust Him with the response and you allow yourself to be defrauded. Because the point is, your testimony and your witness is far more important than any of that stuff. Very quickly, moving to a third example, the third scenario of not resisting the evil one. And this one involves in verse 41, a selfless response to the abuse of authority. A selfless response to the abuse of authority. Matthew five forty-one: if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This involves an ancient law that uh, was begun by the Persians, but picked up by the Romans, which basically allowed a soldier to commandeer any private citizen to carry a payload a certain distance, a thousand steps for them. According to Roman law, a soldier could grab anyone he sees and demand that they pick up his baggage, his weapons, his armor, or anything, and carry it a mile. And this was considered, of course, humiliating, defeating. You have no right. You have no say in the matter. You just sort of have to go along. And it feel, I'm sure it felt like such a violation of someone's personal freedom. You might have had plans and you might have had sort of ideas. You might have been involved with some activity and they just sort of yank you away from it with no prior notice and force you to do this. And and for Jews, it was especially humiliating because sometimes it happened on the Sabbath day and they had convinced themselves that they couldn't walk more than a certain distance on a Sabbath and so it just sort of rubbed salt in the wounds. You see this, by the way, even in Jesus' crucifixion when the soldiers commandeer Simon of Cyrene and force him to carry the cross of Christ. He had nothing... There's nothing he could say about it. This was the law of the land. It was abusive. It was oppressive. It made people feel humiliated. But again, Jesus' emphasis here is don't resist these kinds of things. Don't imagine that God's going to overlook these kinds of things. As a matter of fact, take the opportunity of that oppression... To, to demonstrate your magnanimity, your generosity. Take the opportunity of that kind of, uh, of oppression to demonstrate to them that you understand that there's nothing that they're going to take from you that God himself is not able to restore. And so this is really not an issue of them controlling you as much of an issue as God controlling you. And you're going to demonstrate it in your actions. Your primary concern is not with yourself. It's not with your personal freedom. It's not with your personal dignity. It's not with any of that. It is with the other person. Or to summarize it the way Paul does in Romans 12, overcome evil with good. 
pour coals of fire on the head of the person who's trying to take advantage of you. And realize at the end of the day, God is going to sort all this stuff out. That's the perspective of a true believer. That's what marks the life of a true believer. And then finally, Jesus in verse 42 calls for a selfless response to you might call potential exploitation. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse from the one who would borrow from you. And by the way, when, when Jesus shares this principle in Luke chapter 6, he goes on to talk about those who cannot repay. Those who cannot repay, implying that they are truly in need. These are people who are truly in need. They're not necessarily con men. These are people who are coming along and they have some sort of dire need and they're asking of you and your tendency at that point is to draw back, to hold on to whatever you have and to guard and protect your own interests. Jesus says in Luke 6.33, if you're good to those who are good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get the same back. In other words, he's, he's talking about a kind of calculating generosity that takes place all around you. There are people, he says, who are willing to lend or willing to give to people who are going to give them something in return. They give to friends because they're going to kind of get um, you know, stroked and, and um, patted on the back. They give to maybe family members because they're going to be reciprocated with these affirmations and love. They might give to someone maybe as some sort of investment. I'm going to loan to you, but I'm going to get it back with interest and, and, and profit. But Jesus says nothing, nothing about that separates you from the world. If that's all you're doing, you're not generous. But let me tell you about a true disciple. A true disciple sees that person in need, knowing they cannot give back. And lends to them anyway. Folks, that's in the eyes of most people. Reckless. They would look at it as reckless. You do that, people are going to come alongside of you and they're going to say, you know, that guy, he's never going to pay you back. I mean, just look at his life. I mean, he's, he's a loser. He's a deadbeat. He's never going to pay you back. But that's not what governs you. You're not governed by self-interest. You're not governed by calculated generosity, calculated benevolence. Always Always sort of running through your mind how you're going to get something back out of this. By the way, this is not some sort of blanket affirmation of the con man. Paul's very clear in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If someone's not willing to work, neither should they eat. You're not just sort of doling out money to every, every sort of panhandler that you come across. But what he's talking about here is this essential selflessness. 
that is willing to forego, in some cases, your possessions, in some cases, your personal time. I mean, there have been situations where I've been approached by someone begging and wanting to help them along the way. I would set aside whatever my particular sort of uh, pursuit is, whatever is on my calendar, and want to take them to the supermarket or to the restaurant and buy them a meal. In some cases, they're not interested in that because they're really not uh, interested in, in just getting by by another day. They want to sort of follow some sort of illicit purpose. But see, what drives a believer is a selfless concern for your own priorities and for your own possessions. And when you meet someone who's in real need, you're not so worried about whether or not you're going to get something back out of it. You give. People don't understand this. I mean, they hear all this by Jesus and they think, well, you live like that. If you live like that, all you're going to do is you're going to encourage all kinds of awful behavior, all kinds of violent behavior, all kinds of oppressive behavior. You're going to encourage people taking advantage of you. Well, in a world without God, that may be true. But in a world where God supplies all your needs and God is your defender, in a world where God takes the vengeance and God loves justice and righteousness more than you do, in that kind of a world, a disciple places themselves in the hands of God. And they live their life radically different than everyone around them. So it's not enough to just sort of slap some Bible verses on your cause. It's not enough to attach yourself to some sort of generically religious movement all in the name of resistance and militancy. It's not enough to do all that stuff just because you have some sort of cover and justification and some sort of noble religious doctrine. Jesus says a disciple is going to be different. And they're going to be marked by these kinds of differences. And it's our job to live that out. And to follow the footsteps of our Savior. Let's stand together as we take our hearts and minds to the Lord in these things. Father, we are grateful for this word. Needy to hear it. We live in a world that is especially at this time calling us to a kind of vindictiveness a kind of animosity, a kind of retaliation against all opponents and all aggressors. And Lord, our calling is not to be identified with any of these movements. Our calling is to be identified with Christ. That's what we want. So help, uh, help us, O oh Lord. May you govern our hearts with the Holy Spirit and with the truth of your Scripture. 
May our lives be identified by a kind of trust in a God who rules over all things. And you will, Lord, bring about justice, righteousness, equity, and fairness. And we'll trust our lives to that end and purpose, to our God in heaven and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.